Let me ask you as we come now uh, to the scripture uh, to bow with me, please. Father in heaven, your word is uh, amazing because it's yours. You have given it to us through various ones throughout history. Uh, We're amazed to hold in our hands, to be looking at words that are yours, that come from God himself. And we think, does God exist? Does he speak? The answer is yes and yes. He exists. He speaks. He was spoken to us by your word, which speaks of the one who has come and who is coming again of our Lord Christ. And so we pray that we would see him and see him clearly and trust in him honestly and sincerely. Overcome any resistance, God, that we may have to this word. Use it in such a way that our faith would be built up, that we would come to you as he calls us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Isaiah, please. Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. I want to read verses 1 through 9. Isaiah in chapter 42, please. the word of God. Behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will speak forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who creates the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light For the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Now, if you've been with us, you know we've been working our way through uh, the letter in the New Testament called Colossians, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. And uh, we're going to take a bit of a break from that during this Advent season. We really, in some sense, don't need to do that. Uh, I could continue to preach through that, and that would be the Word of God. That would be fine. Um, some years I'm able to do that and, and, and still maintain this sense of Advent theme. In fact, we don't even have to break for Advent, particularly, because there's nothing in the Bible that either, either prohibits or prescribes that we set aside any time during the course of our year to, to consider the, the birth of Jesus. There's nothing in the Bible that says, make sure you, you, you have this Advent season or celebrate this Christmas time. In fact, we celebrate that every Sunday really because all of our worship is in the name of and through Jesus. 
And since we do not believe the Bible to be myth but historical, then every week we speak in that sense of the birth of Jesus. We say, yes, he's real, yes, he came, and yes, he's coming again. And so we needn't set this time apart. However, we like to. We like to because it's helpful. In the wisdom of those who have gone before us, there has not only been a marking off of time in the sense of calendar dates, January, February, March, and all of that, but also in this sense of a church year. Now, we're not tied to it as a particular church uh, directly, necessarily, but, but, but it made sense to, again, previous generations, to think through life as, it, as we think through the very life of Jesus. And so the church year, the year really began, begins, and we mark it off in what our former brothers and sisters called sacred time, as opposed to ordinary time. But as we mark it off in the sacred time, the church year begins in Advent and carries us through the life of Jesus so that throughout the course of the year we're always thinking of him. Not a bad thing rather good thing, a helpful kind of thing, to think through the very life of Jesus. So, Advent begins the church year, and during the season of Advent, these four Sundays that precede Christmas, we think of the coming of Jesus, not only in his first coming to inaugurate the kingdom, that is to say it's here, but also his second coming, which speaks of the consummation of his kingdom. This says it's, it's here in its fullness. It's here forever. It's here for eternity. And so this sense of Advent builds for us this thinking through the comings, really, of Jesus, his first and second, that the kingdom of God is in him, important for us to know, important for uh, it to be on our consciousness, important for us to reflect upon it. And so, so our church fathers have said, do that on these Sundays preceding this Christmas celebration. Then on Christmas we think of the incarnation, the coming of Jesus and all of that blessing. And then after Christmas they said there should be this time of reflecting on his coming that that sort of culminates then next in this season of our day of epiphany. Because in epiphany we ask the question, who is he really? And so our church father says, well think of the wise men who came. Who did they say he was? He was a king. Think of his baptism. Who did his father say he was? He said, he's, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And who, who did John the Baptist say he was? Well, he said he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So this one whose coming we anticipated, one whose coming we celebrated, is the very Son of God, the promised Messiah. And then think through his life. Think through his teaching. Think through his, his, his miracles and all of that. And even think through our life with him during this season of Lent, which comes next. And that prepares us, you see. Prepares us as we walk in him, as we think of him, as we think of his life, his miracles, his teaching, and all of that. To, to, to take us to his passion. And it begins on that marvelous Holy Week day of Palm Sunday when we come and we see that he is the king and there's this entry into Jerusalem that's triumphal that, that, that shows that he's the king. Uh, but then things in some sense appear at least as if they go downhill after that day and he's rejected. And we know then what happens on that Monday, Thursday of that Holy Week when he meets with his disciples and gives them the mandate to love each other because he's going to be leaving them. And he says, but I'll leave my spirit with you. I'll be with you. And then we know what happens the next day. He's then, of course, that evening arrested and tried and 
on that Good Friday, interestingly titled, he dies. Good only in the sense, of course, that he dies for the sins of sinners, that all who trust in him might be forgiven their sins. But how do we know that when Easter Sunday comes and he's declared to be the very Son of God by his resurrection, that his sacrifice was accepted by his Father. And so on that day, we think it through. And, and we've come all the way from his thinking of his coming to, to now his resurrection. And then that takes us through this time of Easter tide as we think through his resurrection appearances and all that that means. And then we come to his ascension. And he he ascends to rule and to reign and to intercede for us. We reflect upon that. And then Pentecost comes. And at that season, that that day of Pentecost, we, we realize that he is with us by his spirit that we might witness of him and grow in him and his character be formed in us. And then we spend the rest of the year, which our church fathers called Trinity, thinking of us being in and with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and all that that means. And then it begins again four Sundays before Christmas. Advent. And you see, it walks us through this time with Jesus. So, so we note that as a church. It's helpful to us. It, it's it good little clickers in our minds to say, am I thinking about Jesus enough? Well, yes, if we're, being, if we're thinking about this year as if it's set up uh, throughout the life of Christ. So we stop and just take a moment on these Sundays to light some candles, to think about uh, Jesus in his coming. Not that we have to, but because it's helpful. So I want, if God will help me, to take up in the next four Sundays, four different passages in Isaiah. And these have a title, these particular passages. They've been thought of throughout history, and they have a particular title. And they're called the Servant Songs of Isaiah. The servant song. Songs because it's poetry. Each one of these that we'll take up here in chapter 42 and then in chapter 49 we'll take some verses and then in chapter 50 and then we'll take the grand one and begins in the middle of chapter 52 towards the end through Isaiah chapter 53 of the suffering servant song of this Messiah. But they're songs because they're poetry so thus they could indeed be sung. But they're of a servant, a particular servant. Now this word servant, as Isaiah uses it, can be used in various kinds of ways. It can be used rather generically. In fact, Isaiah himself throughout his prophetic book is referred to as the servant of the Lord, a servant of the Lord. Eliakim, who was a helper of a prophet, was also called a servant of the Lord. Israel in this prophetic book is called the Lord's servant as well. But when we come to this in chapter 42, that which I read, you get the sense that this servant is different than all the others. You get the sense that this is the servant. This is the one who comes to establish all that the others can only talk to, only that the others can only illustrate. But he is the one who comes to establish it. I read this morning as we began from Isaiah chapter 9 that you'll recognize as this uh, prophecy of, of Jesus coming. By the way, just for you to know, we sort of bookend Advent by singing Joy to the World and me reading Isaiah chapter 9. I've been doing that for, well, 20 years. Just, I don't know if you picked up on that. And then we end at our Christmas Eve service by me pronouncing the benediction from Isaiah 9, and then we sing joy to the world. So it's kind of, that's why we do that, just you can note that and check us next year. But this passage in Isaiah 9 
begins, for to us a child is born. And so, so Isaiah is saying one is going to come, and he's going to be different than all the others who, who, uh, who are born to us. To us a son is given. And he says the government shall be upon his shoulders. That is, he's going to rule us. It will be his kingdom. The government, how we're ruled... Again, we often think of that as a bad thing, but it, rule isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. It brings order, brings justice, should bring peace, should even bring prosperity and all of that. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then notice, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this, meaning it's going to get done. God will see to it. It's his passion that this will happen. And he says, so something's coming, someone's coming, and and he will rule, and he'll rule in such a way that there'll be justice and righteousness, like David, but better, like David, but, but eternal. And then, of course, in Isaiah chapter 9, we read of this one as well. There shall come from forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the Spirit of counsel and might, wonderful counselor, mighty God, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness. He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with his breath of, the breath of his lips shall uh, kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then he says, peace will come. That's the one. That's this particular servant, if you will, of the Lord. This one, uh, this, this servant. Now, when we're reading through the book of Isaiah, we find it, it divides nicely into two parts. Chapters 1 through 39 lay out the holiness of God, and then also people send us the judgment of God. So if you read through the first 39 chapters, you'll find some, some prophetic words as we've just read in chapters 9 and 11 and so forth, and even in chapter 7 and, and some other places. But uh, you'll find a great deal of, of judgment. Because, you see, both Israel and Judah at this time. Now, Isaiah writes from Judah, which was the southern kingdom. You might remember, it's important to remember, that Israel, as we call it, was divided into two kingdoms after Solomon. Kingdom, uh, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. The, the northern tribes were, as you might suspect, to the north, the southern to the south. The northern tribes were ten tribes. The southern tribes were two tribes. The northern tribes would go by the name Israel, which makes it a bit confusing as we read through the scripture. Uh, but And the southern tribes were known, these two of Judah and Benjamin, were known as Judah. Uh, both of them deteriorated over time. Both of them were, um, were invaded. The northern ten tribes in 722 B.C. were, were destroyed essentially by the Assyrians and then in 586 BC the Babylonians came into the southern kingdom Judah and exiled the people now Isaiah was a prophet of Judah 
the southern kingdom. He began his prophecy, you might remember, Isaiah chapter 6 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. You remember that, 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 that scene. The train of God's robe filled the temple, which means God's huge. If, if just the end, just the tip of his robe filled something as huge as Allen Fieldhouse, you could only imagine what the rest of him might be like. And so he was huge. And so Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and the angels around him saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Heaven and earth is full of your glory. Isaiah saw himself in the presence of the Lord. He said, woe is me. I'm, I'm coming undone, which means I'm falling apart. I'm blowing up. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. Everything that comes out of me is unclean. And I live among a people of unclean lips. We're all unclean. And yet my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. Thus saying, I'm about to die. I can't. Stay in his presence. You remember what happened? Uh, There was an angel, took a coal from the altar, took it and pressed it against Isaiah's lips. He was cleansed and then called. God says, who? Who will go for me? Who can I send? Isaiah said, send me. So, So that was in the year the king Uzziah died. We think about 740 B.C. Isaiah prophesied into the year 701 B.C. Now remember, when we're doing B.C., we're going backwards in a sense, where we're going, we're moving towards zero as years progress. So 740 to 701 is, is progressing. That's how that goes before Christ, as you were progressing to zero. And so you can see that in 722, if the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians, that in 740, when he began to prophesy, things weren't good. After King Uzziah died, a king named Jotham came. After Jotham, his son, Ahaz, became king. Now, Ahaz was a skunk, because Ahaz didn't trust God. He, he, He really, rather than trusting God, he decided that he would make an alliance with the Assyrians. Since the Assyrians were wreaking havoc everywhere in the world and they were in, in process of taking over the northern kingdom, then rather than stand with God against this enemy, uh, Ahaz formed an alliance. Basically, he paid Tiglath-Pileser, who was the commander, uh, he paid him tribute money or protection money. He says, I'll pay you if you don't, if you don't take my lunch money kind of thing. You know, I'll give you my lunch money if you don't beat me up, really, is sort of how, how that all happened. So he paid him protection money. And he trusted, therefore, in that rather than in God. And not, not only was that wrong of him to do, but also then as he made this alliance, the people of Judah began to incorporate into their worship the gods of the Assyrians. Now that's easy for people to do. Because when you want something that someone else has and you aren't willing to trust God and his ways for it, you may try to get it in the same way that they say they got it. And so, since the people of Assyria had military power, since the people of Assyria had security, since the people of Assyria had wealth, then you say, well, if Tiglath-Pileser and his, and his military might and, and, and the king of Assyria and all of that can give it to their people, we'll trust whatever they trust in order to get it. Because what we really want isn't God, what we really want is security. What we really want isn't God, what we really want is material wealth. What we want isn't God, but, but we want this kind of peace that, that seems that they can bring to us. So we're willing to sacrifice trust in God, relationship with God, and all that He promises. And we're, if we can get from the Assyrians what they have. 
Remember Psalm 73, the psalmist looks at those who have all that he, who has all that he wants. And he says, then I've trusted God in vain. It's easy for us to do that. It's easy for us to look at people who have what we want and realize they have what we want and yet they're not following Christ. And so, so maybe we should do what they do in terms of their work. Maybe we should do what they do in terms of their education. Maybe we should do what they do in terms of what they trust in and will be happy like they're happy. I said, no, no, no. No, you're selling short. You're in danger. So of course, things got worse for Judah What saved them, at least temporarily, was a good king, Hezekiah, who came after Ahaz. And Hezekiah uh, followed after God, by and large, and and he purged Judah of all the gods of the Assyrians. In fact, he stood up to the next commander-in-chief of the Assyrians and didn't pay him this commander's uh, Sennacherib. And he stood against Sennacherib and didn't pay him. And Sennacherib was eventually destroyed, and all was well. But things still in the hearts of Judah were not good. And so this chapter 39 of Isaiah, this first half of Isaiah, ends like this, verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And so you get this sense of, it's going to happen to us too, even those in Judah. Now, it was a ways away, but God was saying, this is going to happen. The Babylonians, and nobody really suspected at that point in time, were going to be the ones, but the Babylonians will come, and, and they'll take you away. Well, you know, that, that did happen. Uh, Hezekiah's son Manasseh was one of the worst kings Judah ever knew. And things deteriorated from there. And the Babylonians did come. And the people of Judah were exiled. Now the question is, what next, God? Okay, you're telling me down the line that we're going to be exiled and, and this nation's going to come against us. Well, what, what next, God? Is there any hope for us? Well, chapter 40 of Isaiah starts out with these words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That's a good thing, by the way. Grace. Then he speaks of a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way the Lord, make straight the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. By the way, when you're driving through western Kansas, think of heaven. All the valleys will be filled in, and all the mountains will be brought low, and everything uneven will be made flat. That's what we have. We don't know it, but we live in heaven. (laughs) And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He says, no, 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 he says, comfort them. So when they're in exile, and when they're reading this prophecy by Isaiah, and when they said, "Uh uh-oh, what what Isaiah said would happen, has happened, here we are in exile, then they should also read this comforting word, don't worry, 
you'll be restored. Don't worry, something's coming. As we move on, we'll see this intermediary step where God will actually call this Persian, this man Cyrus, who wasn't even alive then, Cyrus to come and bring them out of their exile and cause them to return to Judah, to Jerusalem. But Isaiah moves on, God really moves on as he begins to speak to them. And he says, God will really do this. And chapter 40 lays out who God is. Speaks of things like this. Who's made, in verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who's measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? In other words, God's greater than anything, anyone you can ever imagine. Verse 25, to whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Lord. Lift up your eyes and see who created these He's saying, trust me, I can make this happen because I am God. Verse 28, have you not heard? Have you not, have you not known? Have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He doesn't grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases his strength and so forth and so on. He says, trust me. Trust me. Don't trust any other gods. Now that isn't a new word at all. That isn't a new word at all from God. In fact, when the people became a nation, he says, okay, here's the first thing I want you to know. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't trust anyone else. You see, every sin ultimately comes back to idolatry. What are we trusting to satisfy us? Who are we trusting to satisfy us? Are we trusting God or are we trusting something else? So even when you lie, there's a sense it's having another God before you. It, it might be the God of your own personal reputation. It might be the God of your own personal appearance. It might be the God of your own financial desire. So you'll lie to get that. But behind every sin really is this sense of idolatry. We're trusting another to satisfy us. Not trusting God. Not trusting his wisdom. Not trusting his word. Not trusting his strength. Not trusting his power. Not trusting his promises. So God says to his people, trust me. And that shouldn't be burdensome to us. God is saying, listen, no one else can satisfy you. Nothing else can do it. So don't trust them. I will. Trust me. Come to me. And I'll fill you. Come to me. And I'll give you wisdom. Come to me. And I'll give you strength. Come to me. And I'll enable you through the next step. Come to me. You go to another. Oh, that might lead you on a path of pleasure for a while, but it'll crash at the end. He says, come to me. So when he says, obey me, this isn't something that should be burdensome. It isn't like he's standing there with a whip and and, and should have to whip us into shape, if you will, and to do it. No, no, no. He's saying, if you know, if you see, if you get it, you'll follow me. You'll know that I will. And I am the only one who can satisfy you. We live so duped. We live so duped. I live duped. Thinking... There must be something else. This will do it. That will do it. If I only had more of this or less of that or whatever. And now he says, look to me. Look to me. I will fill you. I will satisfy you. So then through Isaiah, God speaks to the people 
in a way, he says, all right, what I want you to do is line up all of your idols. I want to have a little face off here. I want you to line up all of your idols. And so in chapter 41 and verse 5, he writes, The coastlands have, coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They've drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it's good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. And he says, you know, okay, bring all these idols that you've built. And, and, and yet, I'm going to show you who I am. So verse 8, he says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its father, farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, I am with you. And be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, help you. I will uphold you with my righteous or as we sing it in that song, how firm a foundation in my omnipotent right hand. He says, I'll strengthen you. And so verse 21 of Isaiah 41 Isaiah writes, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things that they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. He says, line up your gods, ask them what's happened, ask them why. Then ask them what's going to happen and ask them why. And they'll, they can't tell you because they don't know. Because they're dumb, D-U-M-B. They can't speak because they don't know any of this because you made them. They don't know any more than you do. You're the one who crowned them. You're the one that said they know. You're the ones who said we'll follow them. And so he says, they simply don't know. He ends verse 29 by saying, behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Now, we don't really make fashion idols like that, although I think you can make a case that perhaps we do in some regard, but we fashion them in our own minds. We follow after them, whether it's wealth or pleasure or prestige, whatever it is that we want, and we go after whatever can bring that to us. And he says, none of that can really deliver. See, even as we look at our, at our own culture, we, we, we desire security, and, and yet there's war everywhere. And, and so we trust more in our military strength, or we trust more in a political uh, a party, or we trust more in a particular military plan of action or something like that to keep us secure. But, but, but we know, we know it's not going to ultimately work. Oh, it might work in this time and place, in this moment for that battle, but we know another one will come. And how do we know that? Because they always do. There hasn't been a war to end all wars. We think of our health, we think of disease, we think of death. And we continue to search for cures as well we should. We continue to to try to help each other through these things. But we know that when a cure for this disease comes, there'll simply be another disease. And how do we know that? Because it has always been. 
and we look at, at economic instability and all of that, and we realize that there's poverty in the world, we realize that children will go to bed tonight hungry and scared and, 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 and exposed to the elements and all of that. And we know that even if we fix it for some, as well we should, and work to do that, we know that tomorrow night other kids will go to bed hungry and scared and exposed to the elements. And we know that because it's always been that way. We know it in the course of our own lives, in our own relationships. We know that there are difficulties, that we fear loneliness and experience it. There are problems in the context of marriages. There's problems in the context of friendships. There's problems in the context of families. And even though we fix it for the moment, we go to bed that night thinking all is well, but something might happen tomorrow that will raise another issue and we'll be back at it again. And we know that because it's just simply the way that it is and it continues to go. And the question that we have to ask is, is there anyone who can make this right? Is there anyone who can make this right? So then Isaiah begins in chapter 42 with the key word, and he says, Behold. Now, if you have an NIV, they left it out. Sorry. But all the other versions of the Bible and the Old Testament have, Behold. It's there. He, he ended chapter 41 with Behold. He said, Look at all the idols. And so he says, Look at them. Now I want you to look at him. I want you to look at my servant. He's different than everyone else. I want you to see him. He's my servant. These aren't. He's my servant. I will uphold him. I will affirm him. Everything that he does, I will say yes to. That's right. He's my servant. I've chosen him. He's my beloved. But all of a sudden we think, Jesus' baptism. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. We think of the transfiguration when Peter, James, and John went up on the mount with Jesus and saw him as he is. Heard the father speak, this is my son. I love him. Listen to him. And notice he goes on to say that I'll put my spirit upon him. You remember Jesus was in Nazareth. He was in a synagogue. And the passage from Isaiah came that... The Spirit of God would be upon him. Jesus read that. Yes, that's him. And then he says, he'll bring forth justice to the nations, meaning he'll set everything right. He'll be the one who can evaluate. He's the one who can judge. He can say, this is right and that is wrong, and this is right and that is wrong. This is the way it should be. This isn't the way it should be. And he's the one that will come and not only make that evaluation, he'll share his word so we'll know it, and then he'll establish it because of who he is is, and notice how he'll do that first, too. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. That is, he doesn't have to have anybody prop him up. He doesn't need a barker. He doesn't need one, someone to come in front of him and say, listen to him, listen to him, listen to him. Believe him, believe him, believe him. He says, I just have to walk. I just have to move around. I just have to be quiet. Because he realizes that even in the context of his teaching and even in the context of his healing and even in the context of the miracles, something would happen that he, by which he would establish justice. And no screaming could make it happen. Because it would happen in the context of humiliation. It would happen in the context of a cross. That which would be repulsive to everyone. And he says, therefore... When I'm lifted up, you'll be drawn. When I'm lifted up, then you'll see it. It isn't by shouting. It isn't by screaming. 
It's by me, Jesus says, being lifted up. And then he says, A bruised reed he won't break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He'll say he'll be gentle in that in that sense. Now Jesus wasn't gentle to everyone. He wasn't gentle to those who, who, who were prideful. He wasn't gentle to those who thought they were sufficient. He wasn't gentle to those who believed them to be themselves to be righteous. But for those who knew themselves to be bruised, for those who knew themselves to be blind, for those who knew themselves to be in prison, for those who, he, who knew themselves to be just about extinguished by life, he said, come to me. You who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. I will give you the kingdom of heaven. You, you get it. You understand. You know that you don't, you're not worthy of the kingdom. You know that you can't, you can't achieve it on your own. You, you, you know that you shouldn't be in the kingdom. But if you know that, and you trust in me, here it is. It's a gift. I'll give it to you. Come to me. The woman at the well. If you contrast her with the Pharisees, the, the, the ones who thought they were righteous, the woman at the well, she came to know her own sin. He was gentle, kind to her. The woman who had been bleeding for years and years. She knew that everyone would think she was unclean and they couldn't touch her and be around her, yet Jesus was so gentle, she just touched him and he, she was healed. Uh, the man whose son was demon-possessed, and, and he knew that Jesus was the only one who could help in that circumstance. And so he comes to Jesus and sa- he says, Please, Master, help my son, if, if you will, if you can. And Jesus said, If I can. He said, Anything's possible to him who believes. And, and the man says, I believe, but, but, but help my unbelief. And Jesus was gentle and did help his unbelief. When Jesus looked out at people... He saw them, the scripture says, with compassion. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd, harassed and torn. And so he says, go to them. In fact, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send harvesters into this field for them. And Peter. Peter was going to face that night that Jesus was betrayed. Perhaps the most painful night of his life or that any could even think and... Jesus began that moment with Peter by saying, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. But know this, that before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times, and Peter did. And on the third time, he looked at Jesus and wept bitterly. You can only imagine the break in his heart. Then, on that Easter Sunday morning when Jesus was resurrected and the women saw him. He said, go, go tell the disciples and, 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 and Peter. I want Peter to know that I'm alive. And then he met with Peter and, 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 and Jesus three times asked him, do you love me? As if he was saying, you rejected me once. Do you love me? You rejected me a second time. Do you love me? You rejected me a third time. Do, do, do you love me? Peter was able to say, yes. He said, oh, you're restored. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Gentle. And so you see, we know that this one who has all authority comes to those 
are bruised and hurting and know of their sin and he is gentle with them. A little hymn we sing, we don't very often. It's a rather monotonous tune. (laughs) But the words are just as I am. Now we don't come to God the Father just as we are. Because if we come to him as we are, then we come in our sin and he will condemn us. But that song isn't to the Father, but it's to the Son. Because it's to the Lamb of God that we come. And we do come to him as we are, as he draws us to himself as sinners. And he, we come to him and he doesn't break us. And he doesn't snuff us out. He forgives us. And he clothes us in righteousness. And he presents us to his Father, blameless. That's how he comes. And he'll establish this this justice. He'll make it right. In fact, in verse 6, Isaiah says, or God says, I'll give you as a covenant, I'll give you my servant as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And he will do that and has come to do that. I think of the implications of this passage. But I think this first that it gives me confidence to come to him. It says, if you know that you're blind, I'll be your light. Come to me. You remember there was this man who was born blind and I always sort of have to chuckle because I, as a preacher, I'm always looking for illustrations and Jesus just sort of made his own. He thought, I want to show them that I'm the light of the world, so I will, before the foundations of the world, ordain this man to be blind so that I can give him sight. So I can say, I'm the light of the world. Now there's an interesting contrast in that miracle. The contrast is between this man who was given his sight by Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. The man who was given his, his sight found Jesus to be his delight. The religious leaders found him to be a threat. Why was that so? It was so because the man who was blind knew he had no hope, lest someone with power give him sight. And the Pharisees thought themselves able to see. And they thought what they could see was that no work should be done on the Sabbath, not even the healing of a blind man. And so when the blind man was healed, they missed the delight of the miracle and condemned Jesus. And so he comes to us and he says, do you know you're blind? Do you know I can give sight? Come to me. Do you know you're in prison and you're captive? Come to me. I can set you free. But if you think you're free, you'll never come. If you think you see, you'll never come. Then we know we can't. And so when I think of this one who will not break a bruised reed, and I think of this one who will not snuff out this smoldering wick, and 
much of my life I feel bruised and I feel like I'm about to go out. He says, come to me. I'll touch you. They'll strengthen you. I won't extinguish you. And then I realized, well, if Jesus is like that, how should I be? The Father says he delights in this son who's gentle like that. Thus he will delight in us when we're gentle like that. And I realize I don't need to be shouting in the streets in the figurative way. I don't need to be. I simply need to be living and walking and talking in a peaceful way the things of God. Gentle with those who are hurting. Gentle with those who have sinned. Gentle to restore them. Those who know their sin and repent. To speak words of kindness that come from God. Because you see, it was the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We think of the promise of God. One will come from the seed of the woman. He will crush the head of the serpent, though his heel will be bruised. And he'll receive those who are bruised. The same way he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle says, as often we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Might we be proclaiming this from Isaiah 53, that it was the Lord's will to bruise him, to crush him. So that those who are bruised could come to him and he would heal and strengthen and forgive. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's amazing to think, to behold this servant of the Lord. To think he had all power to destroy, all power to condemn, all power to wipe the slate clean, yet he came and gave himself so that he could restore everything as it should be. We know that day is coming, but we know the work has begun now, for he's come. And we in him know that we're forgiven our sins, and I pray that we not think we can see apart from him, not think that we're free apart from him, but, Father, we rely and trust upon him and only him. We, we behold him at this table. Set aside this juice, this bread in such a way, God, that we would see Jesus. As we come to this table, that we, we would know that he's as close to us as this bread and juice. As we take it inside us, that we would know that he's as near to us as that juice is in us, that we are united to him. Only those who are blind and now see. Only those who are in prison but now set free by him. May we trust in him and not other. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord, the servant of the Lord. And 
He invites to it all who are bruised and have been smoldering and have been blind and imprisoned, but know that he is the one who touches and heals. He's the one who gives light. He's the one who sets free. He's the one who gives sight. All those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy. And to believe and depend upon the Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the Savior of sinners. And who desires to desire to live as followers of this Christ. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections can come down this aisle to my left. These down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread. Dip it in the cup as you do. Say this to you. He didn't break me. He didn't extinguish me, but he strengthened me and he gave me light, for he forgave me and I am his. Please come. Amen.